Our scripture reading from, for this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 12. We conclude today our series within the series. We started last week looking at themes of Advent and Christmas on chapter 12 of Ezekiel. And now we'll look at the last verses of that chapter and see what God has in store for us this morning. Ezekiel chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 21 and read until the end of the chapter 28. Ezekiel 12, 21 through 28. Hear, read, and receive this with faith and with love. This is the word of God to you. Thus says the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, what is this proverb that you have about the land of Israel saying, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing? Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb and they shall no, no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are near and the fulfillment of every vision. For there shall be no more any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Behold, they of the house of Israel say, The vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. So far, the reading of his word. I was first introduced to the concept of the SEP field by British novelist Douglas Adams, famous for his comedy science fiction series, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Bear with me. In the words of one of, of, one of, in the words of a character in Adams' book, an SEP is something that we can't see, or don't see, or our brain doesn't let us see because we think it is somebody else's problem. That's what SEP means, somebody else's problem. The book narrators explain it to us if it's not clear already. The somebody else's problem field relies on people's natural predisposition not to see anything they don't want to, weren't expecting, or can't explain. If you paint a mountain pink and erect a cheap and simple somebody else's problem field on it, people will walk past that mountain, round it, even over it, and never notice that the thing was there. As fictitious as the idea of an SEP invisibility field can be, I genuinely believe we have all fallen prey to its very real 
implications. And my belief was confirmed by your reaction to it. Whether it's a leaking faucet, a two-days-old pile of dirty dishes, or the prospect of one of the parents having to do something about a child's newfound tantrum, we all have, I'm sure, looked at something in our lives and ignored it because it was somebody else's problem to fix, solve, or deal. Or at least we wished it was. Then if you look close to our text this morning, that is what you see the people of Ezekiel's time doing to his message. The people began to ignore or reject Ezekiel's prophecies because his warnings did not seem to apply to them. Ezekiel's words about, words about judgment, sin, blindness, rebellion, exile were all somebody else's problem. Or at least they wished they were. Yet even as we find ourselves in this time of the year thinking about Advent and Christmas, about our waiting for God to come and relieve us from our miserable lives, our sinful and rebellious hearts will always find ways to make the reality of God descending from heaven to walk among humanity a problem that we seem to believe belongs to someone else. Perhaps we do so because it is easier for us to believe that we are not that bad, so we don't need saving after all. He's not for us. Or maybe because we are so miserable that we cannot stand the prospect of, for example, reuniting with a family that hurt us, or maybe we do not even have a family to reunite to, and you think Christmas is for happy people, not for me. Maybe, just maybe, sometimes we feel a low-key anxiety because this all just feels that it's not real. None of it. It all sounds very good, but I don't see any reflex of it in my life. So maybe this was never meant to be for me. This morning, God has something to say to those feelings. We will see through Ezekiel and, of course, through our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate subject of any prophet, that God still speaks to us even in our rebellion against him, with enough clarity and surety that we can understand him. In summary, we will see that Jesus came on Christmas to those who need him the most. I'll repeat that. Jesus came on Christmas to those who need him the most. We'll see that in two points this morning. The first one Jesus is God's answer to our uncertainty. Again, Jesus is God's answer to our uncertainty. We'll see that in verses 21 through 25. It has already been a few months since we began our journey through this bewildering book. Still, it never hurts to remember its context and purpose. Ezekiel, the author of the book, was an Israelite priest sent to exile to Babylon along with his people, 
And then God appeared to him in a strange vision in that strange land and made him his prophet. As one commentator puts it, God's commission to Ezekiel was to tear down the things which his hearers depended in this present world so they will see the great things God will do in and through them. And then last week we saw at the beginning of chapter 12 how Ezekiel was kindling the hope of the exiled Israelites for the promises of God through a contrast of God's shining light and their spiritual blindness. However, to the surprise of no one, we arrive, as we arrive at our text today, most of his hearers made very little of Ezekiel's message. So in verse 22, God comes to Ezekiel and asks, what is this thing that the people have been saying? As it were, there was a new proverb, a new saying going about around the exiles, the ex exiled Israelites. They would say the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. The times, they would say to one another, are not a changing. Ezekiel keeps talking, 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 yet nothing keeps happening all the time. Which, of course, as you look at it through these lenses, it's not a difficult position to relate to, isn't it? As I have said many times in the series, our own lives look a lot like an exile. We live right now far from God. And his presence among us, unlike the days of the great kings, of the great prophets in the Old Testament, is relatively uneventful. King David fought with giants. Elijah the prophet brought fire from heaven. And we, we look a lot more like Ezekiel, lying down on the floor for more than a year without a clear idea as for why. The question then, at the root of what the people were saying is, can we, right now, be sure that God still speaks for us, to us, God still cares for us? This is what the exiles meant with their newfound proverb. Just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, the exiles were, and we still are to this day, always tempted to answer God's word, God's thus says the Lord words with, did God really say that? Well, he did. And yes, we can still be sure that he still speaks. We see that in God's answer to them in verses 23 to 25. I will put an end to the silly talk, says the Lord. The time is near for every promise I spoke to be fulfilled. Which sounds great, but... Can you be a little bit more specific? When, when will it happen? Is that like tomorrow? Next week? Next year? And looking at their context, it's easy to imagine why they would be so eager to see God's promises becoming a reality. 
A few verses ago, as we saw a couple weeks ago, at the end of chapter 11, God said they would bring them back to the land. He will give them new hearts and a new spirit, just like we read this morning, so they would obey him, so they would not fall into exile again. And as any of us would, having a promise like that, they were probably living in expectation, right? Are we there yet, God? We would ask, having promises like that, like children in the backseat of a long journey. Are we there yet? 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 As early as Eden, God's people have been awaiting people, says Dr. Johnny Gibson, my old Old Testament professor, in his latest book precisely about the Advent season. As early as Eden, God's people have, have been awaiting people. His point, to Ezekiel's point, to my point, is that this unnerving anticipation for God's promises that we see here in chapter 12 have always been the experience of God's people, always, ever since Genesis 3.15, when God promised he would revert the curses of sin and death through the seed of the woman. And this is the entire pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament. God's people in trouble and God sending some help that would give them and us glimpses of that final act of salvation. We have always been awaiting people. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Ruth, Samuel, David, Elijah, Solomon, Jonah, Asher, Ezekiel, and Nehemiah. Those were just some of the many people God used to prepare the way for the coming of the ultimate seed of Eve. His final answer to our, are we there yet, questions. With that life of expectation in mind, we can then reach the opening words of the book of Hebrews with a newfound clarity. Long ago, the author says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our prophet, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. You see, Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, is the ultimate answer to the longings of his people. He is God's answer to the everything comes to nothing cry because every vision comes to him and points to him. He is the word of God spoken and performed, so to speak, of verse 25. Paul makes it even more clear. All the promises of God find their yes in him. So while the people of Ezekiel's day had to wait patiently until they indeed returned to the land, having then a foretaste of that final deliverance, we have God's supreme promise-fulfilling act. Jesus Christ, who came to us once, 
and promised he would come back again. And yes, precisely because he already came to fulfill all those old promises, we can live in this new waiting season that we find ourselves with surety and with joyful expectation. The living word of God revealed himself to us in grace and glory. And just as God sustained his people in exile with the words of his prophet, he does, he does the same to us now through Jesus. Whenever we find in the Bible promises fulfilled in Christ, our hope for his return is strengthened and our strength to endure the weight is renewed. So if you're feeling a little bit discouraged today, let me remind you, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 12, as he was the fulfillment of Ezekiel 11, 8, 4, 3, 2, and 1, and all the other sermons I, Pastor Larry or Pastor Curry, have ever preached from this pulpit. And even more, if you feel discouraged this coming week, I promise you, we will gather again here every week to be in his presence, under his word, until he returns, to be reminded that he keeps his promises. God spoke, and it will happen because he spoke, and it happened. And even if, if that is too much to ask for you to wait another week, you have six other days between now and then to go through your Bible and wonder at so many promises fulfilled when Jesus was born on Christmas Day. That's a great tool of comfort for you, Christian. However, sometimes, as I mentioned in the introduction, it is precisely the spirit of Christmas, of this time that we are at, That brings us down, isn't it? God's promises of joy, comfort, and belonging seems to come, seem to come to everyone else but you. Christmas has become somebody else's problem. Does God have an answer for that? We'll see that in our final point this morning. Jesus is God's cure to our indifference. Jesus is God's cure for our indifference. We see that in the last verses, 26 through 28. In verse 27, we see that the people have also been saying another proverb. The vision that Ezekiel sees is for many days from now, they say, and he prophesies of times far off. Sure, it sounds all very nice, they say to each other, but it has nothing to do with us right here, right now. It is either for a distant future or from a distant past. It is somebody else's problem, not ours. Which, once again, it isn't hard to relate to that, is it? 
After all, this could just as well have been your reaction to everything I said so far while I say it close to a nine-foot-tall Christmas tree. Because this week, while the world outside decks their halls with boughs of holly, because tis the season to be jolly, some of you will be suffocated by the hopelessness and devastation that some heartbreak in your life, whether old or recent, brings to your mind and heart. The reason this world thinks that this time of the year is the most wonderful one is the same reason that makes it so brutal to some of us. My own family has not been immune to it, if I may share a personal story. It was not many years ago when Mari and I were struck by the sight of this empty manger right here when we got to church. That year we had had a miscarriage in November, having faced infertility issues for as long as we were married. And when we came to the church that day, we remembered it was the season to celebrate the birth of a baby, so to speak. And when we saw this empty crib right here, the prospect of facing another Christmas away from family with an empty crib at home seemed simply unbearable. Why is that? Why do some of us feel like that at Christmas? In the words of Matt Redmond, an insightful even if unknown pastor, we have, sunk it, we have it sunk deep into our collective cultural consciousness that Christmas is for happy people. You know those, those with idyllic family situations enjoyed around stocking decorated fireplace dream lights. Christmas is for healthy people who laugh easily and at all the right times. Right? He says. And since most of us are not like one of those families that he just mentioned, it seems easier to just cover the entirety of Christmas with an SEP field and pretend it is not even there. Christmas is somebody else's problem. If that's your case, God's answer to his people is what you need to hear this morning. Verse 28. None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed God reassures his people. It's not very different from the answer he gave before, that his plans are never out of time or out of place. Quite the contrary. So for the original audience, this meant they needed to spend some time in exile, yes, before they could return to the land. But this was not so much an exercise of their patience, but it was the long-suffering mercy and love of God himself exercising his patience while Ezekiel and other prophets carefully explained what happened, why they were there, 
so that they, so that they, so they would be brought to repentance. It was not merely their patience that was being tested. It was God's patience being exercised in their favor, giving them time to repent. They thought God was late or too distant in the future, but he was right where and when he needed to be in his plan for the redemption of his people. Which in turn leads us to the reason why I repeatedly quoted a particular passage of Galatians in recent sermons. Tying together the meaning of Advent and Christmas, the Apostle Paul says this in that letter. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. All the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus, we saw. And they come at the right time, in the right place, for the right people, God's telling us now. Matt Redmond again, Christmas, the great story of the incarnation of the rescuer is for everyone, especially for those who need rescue. Jesus was born as a baby to know the pain and sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus was made to be like us so that in his resurrection we can be made like him, free from the fear of death and pain of loss, he says. So this empty manger right here is a reminder that God came, yes, but he also came as one of us, identifying with us so that he could take on himself and bore on his shoulders the gloom and doom promises of judgment that we find so abundantly in Ezekiel, receiving in his flesh and bones the punishment that we deserved for our blindness and our rebellion and our indifference to his birth. Yet, having gone to the Father after his resurrection and ascension, having paid the price for our sins, he gave us then his spirit to testify to our hearts, to speak to us this day, through his word that he will come again and make all things new. In the meantime, as we wait, like the people of Ezekiel's time waited, he brings us back to him through his spirit. He gives us a family through the family of the faith. Give us a new heart that longs for him. Gives us his spirit so that we would be able to obey his laws and statutes. He gives us time to hear what he did and what he has done so that we can repent from our sins and believe in him.
because of that, because of what Jesus did and does and will do, Chris, the Christmas manger becomes, to quote Redmond one last time, the most hopeful place in the universe darkened by hopelessness. When you get this, when you understand this, when you receive this word, you realize that Christmas is not somebody else's problem. It is precisely the solution, the answer for the issues of those who think so. As I like to say, Christmas is for those who hate it the most. For it reminds us that he carried upon himself the pains, the burden, and the guilt that we had and gave to us the blessings of sonship and fellowship that we crave, that he always had with his father, and it's now ours as well. Like the people of Ezekiel's time who eventually returned to the land with a new heart and a new spirit, we receive through Jesus all the blessings of salvation from judgment and the blessings of belonging to God and the gathering of his people united in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So this, in this way I just described, is how this specific church could then open, could then represent God's embrace of my family after our loss on that Christmas past, providing us with words of care, hugs, meals, and sometimes just a shoulder to cry on. This is why this same church, for example, will gather on Christmas Day, two weeks from now, in that social hall over there, to celebrate Christmas with those who, like my family, are far from home. You should all come. Like the gospel of Christ, this is a free invitation to all who need it. Because the point is, in the gathered people of God, like in Ezekiel's day, this people become a concrete, visible sign of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, coming for all of us, wherever we are, whenever we are. So come, all you unfaithful, weak, and unstable, know you are not alone. Come, barren and waiting ones, those even weary of praying, and see what your God has done. Christ is born for you. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and open our eyes to see your light now in this time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility so that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit now and forever. In his name we pray and together we say, Amen.